Technology surrounds us. We drive it, we ride in it, we type on it, we watch it, we listen to it, we talk into it. Technology makes our work, our play, and our interactions easier to pull off, like right now. But rarely do we step back and take time to ask, but what is the cost? What are our technologies doing to us? And if you're like me, you want a smartphone that remains within arm's reach 24-7, 365. So what is that accessibility to the internet and text messaging doing to us? It's a question few ask, and even fewer can answer, it seems. But I want to press into this question more on the Authors on the Line podcast. We've talked about this recently in an episode I titled Six Ways Your iPhone is Changing You, an interview I did with Dr. Douglas Groteis, to explore some of the specific ways the iPhone changes us in negative ways. But there's much more to say, especially as we look at technology in our lives and the big picture. To talk more about this age of distraction, as it's been called, we put two authors on the line, Dr. Arthur Hunt and Dr. David Wells. We start with Arthur Hunt. He serves as the Associate Professor of Communications at the University of Tennessee at Martin. His book, The Vanishing Word, The Veneration of Visual Imagery in the Postmodern World, published in 2003 by Crossway, was instrumental and inspirational for me as I developed and wrote my own book on reading, Lit, published in 2011. I value Hunt's wisdom on reading, literacy, and increasingly I'm coming to a greater appreciation for what he has to say about the history of technology and its growing dangers. Hunt recently published a collection of his essays titled Surviving Technopolis, Essays on Finding Balance in Our New Man-Made Environments, published in 2013. Technology has a history, a very long history, stretching back to shovels and plows and reaching forward to the recent release of the iPhone 6 Plus that dominated the news. So how did we get to this point in the history of technology, a point that has been described as a technopolis? I asked Dr. Hunt to begin with a historical survey of technology. Here's what he said. Well, you know, a technological society, as Postman and Alul and others talked about it, it's more than just a society of, of gadgets. Uh, Postman wrote a book called Technopoly. And in the book, he, he talks about three periods of history in relation to how people have used their their tools or their technologies. And he categorizes them into tool using and then also technocracies and then also technopolies. So it might be helpful if we just kind of real quickly scan these three periods. Now, tool using societies, this would be uh, agrarian societies. We might think of the Middle Ages, uh, for example, and we we think of inventions like the water mill and the windmill, and Postman mentions the heavy wheeled plow. Uh, these were inventions that uh, were developed to help solve daily problems. Uh, we might also think of building of the uh, castles and great cathedrals, stone cutting tools, pulley systems, and that sort of thing. And Postman says that these tools did not threaten the culture. Uh, it did not even threaten or attack their religion in any way. But then, uh, the next period, he talks about a technocracy, which is uh, a period of time which tools came to play a much more central role. Uh, Postman would say that these tools came to actually attack the culture. Uh, it attacked their tradition, their social mores, their their politics, their their rituals, even their religion. So we think of inventions like the clock, which restructured the rhythms of the day. 
and and the seasons. Uh, he mentions the telescope. The telescope uh, moved Earth from the center of the universe and cast it uh, in orbit around the sun. It's very significant. And then, of course, the printing press, which Postman de- devotes a lot of time to talking about. The printing press was very significant. It instigated the Protestant Reformation. Uh, it helped form nation-states. It helped start our experimentation with modern democracy. But even though these were significant developments, these inventions, these tools, although they attacked the culture, they did not redefine life and life's meaning as being located in machinery and in technique. Now, when Postman talks about a technopoly, the third period, He's saying that we've reached uh, a period in which all forms of cultural life have surrendered to the sovereignty of technology. Uh, we might say technology with a capital T, uh, if, if, uh, to use a Brave New World uh, reference. And we can see this in America. Um, in America, the shift was sort of tied up in the Industrial Revolution, here in America, we did not have the type of cultural restraints that Europe had, and uh, our notions of progress were uh, were much more uh, forward-looking or enlightened, we might say. So when when people like Morse and Bell and Edison and Rockefeller and Ford, uh, those people we think of as the robber barons, when they when they began to really rev up the industrial machines it sort of set a precedent, and uh, it set a precedent with today's capitalists. We still have that today. We have it with Gates, and we have it with the other modern uh, techno-industrialists. And uh, the spirit of the age, uh, with this, where we are under a technopoly, says that absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing is going to stand in our way of technological progress. Uh, So, you know, when we talk about uh, false salvation, it's a false salvation only in the sense that we put so much cultural stock in a sort of headlong rush into the future without any clear telos. The only real telos that we get... uh, is uh, it's got to be bigger, it's got to be faster, it's got to be more, and it's got to be newer. Uh, so that's the telos of technopoly. Well, somebody might ask, well, what's wrong with this? Well, it advances the notion that our purpose in life is to be a satisfied customer, a consumer of material goods. So the next big thing is not the coming of God's kingdom, but the coming of the curved TV screen. Yeah, and speaking of Neil Postman, he died in October of 2003. The first iPhone was released in June of 2007, a four-year gap. I, I would have loved to have known what Postman thought of the iPhone, but we must speculate. That's all we have. What do you think Postman would himself say today about the smartphone, its benefits, its drawbacks, and its dangers? Yeah, um, well, I think Postman is just as relevant today as he was when he wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death, which I think was back in 1985. Even though Postman was talking primarily about television when he wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death, 
uh, you know, he was saying that television trivializes information because it must everything on television must be presented according to the rules of television. Uh, television is uh, fast moving; it's a visual medium, so everything on television is packaged as entertainment. Because the camera only stays on uh, its subject for you know a few seconds, and because the news has to cut to a commercial every eight minutes, and because television is primarily commercial, commercially based, uh, the content of what's on television uh, becomes, Postman says, a kind of uh, a vaudeville act. So he uses the example of uh, Sesame Street, for example, which is educational content for television. But even Sesame Street is vaudeville to to a large extent. Uh, We might say that VeggieTales, by the way, is also sort of vaudeville. But, you know, if we look at today, um, we have just as much screen time, if not more. Uh, We have more screens. So I think the potential for information to be trivialized is just as great now as it was 30 years ago when Postman wrote the book. There are some writers today uh, who write about uh, this question, and they like to use uh, the term uh, that we're a distracted culture. And I think Postman is really basically saying the same thing with television. It's, it's distracting because even though we think that we are becoming informed people, we're really being... Uh, entertained. That book by Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death, is one of the great books of our age. I mean, it's hard to overstate the value of what Postman achieved in that book. In a sentence, can you summarize the contribution of Postman and also uh, the contribution of men like Jacques L. Yule and Marshall McLuhan uh, over their concerns with technology? How would you summarize these three men in a sentence? Well, I'm glad you mentioned these individuals, and we've already talked about Postman. you know, I think Postman's point was that Nietzsche, Darwin, Marx, and Freud uh, in the 20th century, they uh, helped to erode old ideas and traditions. Maybe Darwin is still pretty um, prominent today more than the others. But another thing that was very prominent in the 20th century was the reverence that we gave to technological progress. The 20th century was very, a very bloody affair. And now that the dust has somewhat settled, uh, our trust in technology still remains pretty strong. And and I think this was Postman's message in Technopoly. Jacques Ellul, you mentioned, uh, he, his, if we had, if we could boil down his, what he was saying in one sentence, uh, it would be this. He, He was saying that we had abdicated our moral sensibilities and responsibilities and had substituted those for technological know-how. I think C.S. Lewis was making the same point in The Abolition of Man, especially the third chapter, when you know you read about the conditioners, and I, I deal with that in my book. Now, if we could boil down what Marshall McLuhan was saying into one sentence, I think it would be this. You had better open your eyes, buddy. Uh, the world is changing, and it's changing a lot faster than you can keep up with it. Yeah, so true. And what does that chase for new technology do to us? Uh, I'm grateful for their contributions to helping us think about the consequences of our technology. But of course, uh, even more important are biblical principles. How does scripture guide us as we think about technology in our lives? Well, I think a lot about this. And I think we could talk quite a bit about 
this, but I'll just mention several. First, I think the Bible informs us to walk circumspectly. That is, like McLuhan said, with our eyes wide open. Uh, to some extent, I think we should be like the children of Ezekiel, men who understood their times and knew what to do, knew what to do in a world that's constantly changing and telling us that we need this new gadget and what this new gadget will do for us. We should be asking, what is this new gadget going to do to us? What is it going to be doing, not just to me personally, but to my family, to my community, to the world? So I think that's the first thing. We need to walk circumspectly. Also, I think we need to be masters of our technologies and not the other way around. The consumer should not be consumed. And then I think, and people need to really address this third one that I'm going to mention. I've been thinking a lot more about this one. We should practice the virtue of moderation, what the Bible calls self-control. We should learn to redeem the time because the days are evil, the Bible says. That is, they're short because we're going to die. Therefore, we need to, to make the best use of our time. And I don't think we can just frame these truths as private responsibilities. I think they're communal. So our habits affect the people around us, our children, our spouses, our neighbors. So if there's a biblical place to evaluate our new technologies, those, were the, those are the ones that I, I would mention. That was Arthur Hunts, author of the book Surviving Technopolis, Essays on Finding Balance in Our New Man-Made Environments. We turn now to David Wells. Wells is a friend of ours, and he serves as Distinguished Senior Research Professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He has authored a shelf full of excellent books over the years, books like God in the Wasteland and No Place for Truth. His newest book is titled God in the Whirlwind, How the Holy Love of God Reorients Our World, published by Crossway. I was surprised to see how much of the book was devoted to internet use, and so I asked Dr. Wells, what is this age of distraction doing to us, specifically to us as Christians? From his home in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, here's what he said. There is no doubt that it is uh, highly distracting, because we get computer pings and beeps and and uh, uh, a text message comes in and, uh, and so on. I mean, we all understand this, as you said. But the much larger question, and, and it's harder to understand, is what is this doing to us? Uh, what's it doing to our minds when we are living with this constant distraction? And what happens to us when we are in constant motion, when in fact we almost are addicted to constant visual stimulation. What happens to us? That is the big question. The smaller question is, how do we find time for the things that are really central in our lives as Christians? And and that uh, is focusing on the reality, the presence, and the truth of God. That is at the heart of our life. Uh, In my book, I have quickly defined our objective uh, in life, which is to become God-centered in our thoughts, God-fearing in our hearts, and God-honoring in all that we do. That, we know, is what we are about on this earth. 
And this society of distraction, if we allow it to overwhelm us and press us into its mold, it will take time away from those things that are central, our focus upon the reality and the presence and the glory and the goodness and the greatness of God. So in that sense, it becomes a real competitor. But there is a deeper problem than that, and it is what is happening to our minds as we skip from task to task, message to message, website to website, blog to blog, constantly in motion, becoming nomads that wander around and settle nowhere because we, we are being disturbed every, every moment. The, the average person shifts tasks every three minutes. And, and what happens half the time is that we are interrupting ourselves. It's not that we've had a computer ping to pick up an email. We actually are interrupting ourselves. What is this doing to us deep down? I'll tell you what I think it is. We are losing the capacity for attention, by which I mean the ability to focus on something and, and to think about it. And if we lose that ability, how then is God going to be the central organizing thing in our lives? How, how are we going to become God-centered in our thoughts if we are fragmented in our thoughts and God-honoring in our lives if, in fact, our lives are just bits and pieces of information? That's the problem. Yeah, that, that's a very big problem. Uh, you call this an addiction to distraction. Uh, that's probably the most disturbing reality in all of this. We're not passive victims of technology. We're not passive victims of distractions. In a sense, we're addicted to them. I mean, what, what's happening to us? Let, let me give you a, an illustration as to what I think is happening to us. When a little baby is born and is just, just coming to life, you will notice that they, they focus their attention on, on you know, a bright light, an interesting shape, something that's moving, a noise. These are all surface things. And after a while, they begin slowly to be able to focus. So it's not that they don't see the bright light or hear the noise or see the interesting shape, but now they're beginning uh, to, to organize their world. And as they mature, they begin to see uh, what they need to do and in time to pick up responsibilities and so forth. Uh, in a strange sort of way, I think what this culture of distraction does is, uh, and I don't want to insult anybody, but, but what it does is it catches our attention in the same way that the shiny object, the interesting shape, the color, the noise catches the attention of a little baby. But what we have to do as Christians is, while we don't close any of this out, but we have to be able to organize our internal world. Because if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to see the difference between things that are really weighty in life 
and those that are ephemeral and flashy and superficial, those that are true, those that are wrong, those that really matter, those that we can brush off. That, that capacity to do that is what the Bible talks about under the language of wisdom. Now, wisdom is, is not, uh, we today might think of it as, as, uh, as smarts, that wisdom is somebody with great intellectual power. But in the Bible, it's really not. It's, it, it, it's a heart thing. It's, it's the ability uh, to see life for what it is and, in a way, to see through life because of our knowledge of God. So the text says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's, it, it is so because we are seeing our life with, with the rays of eternity shining down on it. And when you see life in that sort of light, it looks very different from the way that life looks like on the internet. Mm, That's so good. Thank you for that. Uh, this really is all about the heart, and Scripture helps us to see how this age of distraction feeds off the inner working of our heart. And related to this, another distraction you pinpoint in your newest book, and it's certainly a heart issue, um, are Christians who fear being out of touch with current trends. Uh, there's a great fear of missing out what's trending online right now. This fear seems to drive many Christians. Can you talk about this? Well, the, the, the whole point about uh, the Internet uh, is that it is in constant motion. And if it is not, it has doomed itself under obsolescence. And, and so we, we develop an appetite uh, for what's new and what's changing uh, and what's superseded yesterday. People on Facebook uh, uh, update their biography in terms of their feelings, some of them on, on an hourly basis, because if they don't, they've, they've become obsolete. They're not interesting uh, anymore. The most relevant thing in the world is what is eternal. Because everything else is transient. It's all fading. It's, it's only what is eternal that endures. So what is eternal? It is, it is God himself. It is his character. It is his will and his ways. It is his truth in scripture. These are the things that are eternal. And in that sense, they are the most relevant, the most up-to-date things that anyone could find. <laughs> there was a very interesting study that UVA did, um, was published last week. Uh, you know how often people say, if only I had 10 minutes to myself. Well, what they did was to put people in a room with nothing, with no distraction, and they said, you're on your own to think. You can think about anything you want. The only thing you can't do is to try to go to sleep. What they found was that 10 minutes was the absolute outside that the overwhelming majority could endure. They became unhappy. Uh, they, they didn't like their own company. Uh, they, they felt uneasy. Uh, and in, uh, what they did, they, they allowed people, the only distraction, as it were, that they could have was a small electrical shock. And uh, 
the majority of people, instead of sitting there with their thoughts, they gave themselves a shock because it was something to do. It was, it was a distraction. Now, if, if we have become so needy of being distracted as we apparently are, then how are we going to get to know God? Because the knowledge of God is two parts. It is what he has revealed of himself in Scripture, and it is the business of knowing him as we walk with him through life. And like anything else of value, anything else, this does not come quickly. We cannot be impatient with it. And the internet makes us highly impatient. We want to go on to the next thing, next thing, now, immediately. Uh, can't be too soon before we move on. Uh, but the knowledge of God, walking with God, learning to walk with him through all the conflicts, anxieties, difficulties, injustices of life, that is a life process. That is, it takes time for this knowledge to mature in people. We rob ourselves of that uh, if we allow ourselves to be shaped by this culture of distraction. Yeah, that's shocking on many levels. Um, we cannot not use technology. We're using it right now. Uh, so are you advocating that we become sort of part-time monks? I mean, do we withdraw from technology for a time, technology fasting or something like that? What's the solution? And what, what do these boundaries look like for you uh, in your own life? I, um, I don't think that we can uh, withdraw from it, but we certainly can and should limit it. Uh, and on the positive side, and I know this may sound very old-fashioned, but on the positive side, I would say what we need to do is to keep exercising our minds by reading, because and and reading reading good books. I, I they don't have to be uh, uh, sort of super classics always. Uh, but we need to keep reading because that really does exercise our minds in understanding sentences, uh, following narratives, all of those things that we need, those abilities that we really do need uh, if we're going to be studying uh, Scripture. But as to the limits, uh, I think we would all be wise to put limits on our use of technology. And different people do it differently. I know some who have tried. They, they limit themselves to the number of blog sites they'll go to or sites that they will uh, visit. Uh, right now, there are about 50 million websites you can go to, 75 million blogs, and some people want to visit them all. Uh, but put a limit on that, or as I do, uh, I do not, for example, access my email on the weekends. I absolutely will not. So I put a little, um, some brackets around it. And Saturday and Sunday, no email. And nor do I uh, go on the internet unless I absolutely have to. Your book is about the holiness of God, the greatness of God, and you've spent your life studying the attributes of God, and fruitfully so. 
As we close, speak to a young Christian listening to this right now. They're inundated with distractions. They know it. And they're facing a decision in their life. They, they're asking the question, what will I lose if I spend the next 20 years of my life hopping from digital distraction to digital distraction? To a Christian asking this question, what would you say? How would you plead with them? Well, the, uh, all of life is passing and fading. Now, uh, the tragedy of that uh, is lost on us oftentimes because uh, we're like frogs that just jump from one lily pad to another. So if one's beginning to sink, we, we jump to the next one. But the truth is uh, that after a while, people will find uh, that the lily pads get harder and harder to find. And then they find themselves uh, in the water and there's nothing else there. Uh, the greatest, deepest, most glorious thing that we can know is what God has revealed to us of himself in his in his love and his holiness i mean let's just think about this uh, the holiness of god even in its expression of wrath is in fact our hope because we know that in this life there is no balancing of the scales the truly evil nasty people get away with their stuff and on the other hand uh, those who live a virtuous life are often punished for it. But there is coming a time when God in his holiness will put truth forever on the throne and evil forever on the scaffold. He is going to take his broom and he's going to sweep this universe clean. And think about the love of God, that love which has uh, conceived of of our redemption, which reaches us in grace. Here is the thought that before we ever thought about God, he had taken thought about us, and, and he has preceded us. No matter where we went, he was there before us, and by his grace, he reaches into our lives. Uh, is there anything deeper in life, anything more weighty, than this knowledge. No, everything else pales into insignificance. So, if we want to, we can focus on the shiny stuff that glitters for a moment. But let me tell you, it'll be gone. And when somebody comes to the end of their lives and they look back, what they will see if they've only looked for the glitter what they will see is that their hands are empty. That was David Wells from his home in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. I really appreciate Arthur Hunt and David Wells and thank them for their time. Once again, the books we are centering our conversation on were Arthur Hunt's new book, Surviving Technopolis, Essays on Finding Balance in Our New Man-Made Environments. And the most recent book from David Wells titled God in the Whirlwind, How the Holy Love of God Reorients Our World. And if you want more about the specific ways these digital distractions are changing us and rewiring us, see my recent episode titled Six Ways Your Phone is Changing You. To find that episode and a full archive of our previous episodes, search for Authors on the Line in the iTunes Store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. As with all the other episodes that have come before this one, this episode, episode number 34, are each made possible because Desiring God is supported by generous financial donors by people like you. So thank you. 
And if you'd like to partner with us to support this podcast in the future, you can support us by going to desiringgod.org and click on the Donate tab. Your financial support is always greatly appreciated. I'm your host, Tony Ranke, thanking you for making this podcast part of your life. Be smartphone smart, everyone, and I'll see you next time.